Hello, it's me. I'm back with another episode of Tangle Tales. It is your host, Andy. And last episode I teased during my infamous Miller Lite review and uh, sensory analysis that I would do a little bit of a deep dive into um, the mashing process just because it was the first thing that came into my mind. But then I thought about it and said, yeah, that is uh, something I, I mentioned I would deep dive into, especially after my brother reached out with questions about it. So I figured I would go ahead and do that right here. This is not going to be anything too crazy, but I just wanted to cover some more specifics that I didn't cover too much in that episode. Sorry, I just had to burp. But uh, yep, I'll uh, go ahead and dive right into it, um, into the mash. So we talked about um, milling grain and having that ready, um, having your water set up um, the proper volume of water, the proper temperature for that water to be mixed with grains to create a combination of grain and water, uh, which we refer to as the mash. And hopefully that combination of grain and water comes out to the predetermined temperature that you have decided is appropriate for that style of beer that you're brewing. So when we begin to mix those two ingredients. One of the things that happens, or one of the things that um, can happen or differently in like a homebrew setting than in a professional brewery setting is the rate at which those are mixed together. So if you can imagine on a homebrew scale, you have a pot or even, you know, the scale at Tanglefoot, you have a pot of water. Let's say there's 15 gallons in that pot. And you heated it up to 170 degrees, let's say. And you begin to pump that. Um, or I guess a lot of homebrewers will like dump or just like use the mash tun as the hot liquor tank where you're heating the water up in. And so basically you're able to put a bunch of water, move a bunch of water at one time into a vessel. And so... You can add your grain at pretty much whatever rate you want. You can either just add it slowly or you can just dump it all in at once. Um, dumping it all in at once is not ideal. Um, mixing it together um, at a constant rate is more ideal. And in a brewery setting, we have, um, let's say at Black Star specifically, we have an auger that transports the cracked, crushed grain um, through a warm auger to the top portion of our mash tun. It then falls through this cylinder into the mash tun and the cylinder, it's a you know stainless steel cylinder that has a um, perforations around it. And out on the outside of that cylinder is another cylinder that kind of encapsulates it. And uh, it we pump water, the hot water, the hot liquor, into the uh into that kind of jacket around that cylinder and it sprays hot water through those perforations and it hydrates the grain falling through it it wets it so to speak um and so we call that a grist hydrator so as the grain the dry grain is falling through it gets blasted with water like a you know 50 tiny super soakers and that grain falls through and ends up falling into the mash tun 
hydrated, wet, and ready to be stirred and mixed up. So we don't have that on super tiny scale. So adding the grain and water in a uh, constant rate together is most ideal, um, but less controllable on the small scale. So once we start adding grain uh, into the mash with the water, what we're looking to do is kind of homogenize those two things. So obviously we want to hydrate the grist, which is mostly like larger cracked pieces of that grain and husk material. But due to the nature of cracking that, you get a lot of powder. And so you want to make sure that you're not, that you're stirring efficiently and you're breaking up all of the clumps that, that form when you dump, you know, imagine you're dumping a cup of cup of flour um, which is just pulverized wheat um, into a bucket of water and it'll just be, it'll just clump up and it won't mix evenly. There'll just be this like floating mound iceberg of a uh, flour powder and then mixing it up just takes a lot of extra effort and uh, just creates clumps and it's not an ideal situation. So you want to avoid dough balls, which is what we call kind of like a dry ball island of grain that got wet on the outside and it kind of like jellified and now you've got this like inside is all this dry grain and powder that isn't being hydrated that doesn't have access to the water on the outside therefore you're losing efficiency because you can't extract the sugar from that particular part of the mash so being very diligent to break those dough balls up and making sure that you have a nice smooth homogeneous uh, mixture of grain and water Take a little sip of my beer. So once you get that entire batch of grain mixed into your entire strike volume, again, predetermined volume of water at a predetermined temperature so that when you mix it with the grain that is presumably at a constant temperature, whatever ambient temperature is, uh, and you generally have a kind of a, a, a rough idea of the temperature differential between the two. So how much higher in temperature does the strike water need to be than the temperature of the grain? And you can kind of, or I'm sorry, than the temperature of the mash that you want to hit. So you, you kind of have a rough idea of that to begin with. And so when you mix those two things together, hopefully you're landing on a specific temperature that you've predetermined. If you've you know, thought about this and, and done things properly. So what is happening in the mash when you get all of those variables correct? So you have X amount of water, let's say 10 gallons of water mixed with 40 pounds of grain or whatever. Um, and you're, you're mixing it at a specific um, rate so that you're achieving that temperature that you set beforehand. So Let's uh, let's go ahead and go through each of those variables. So the amount of water um, is determined by there's different standards, but generally I've always used a 2.5 to one liquor to grist ratio. So the, the grain at this point is called grist. Once it's once it's milled, it's referred to as grist. Liquor is the, the hot water, the hot liquor tank, hot water. So 2.5 units of liquor to one unit of grist. So when I'm calculating this um, on a larger scale, I'm saying, hey, I'm going to be brewing with whatever, let's say 500 pounds. 
of grain, which would be 500 pounds of grist. And I need 2.5 times that poundage of liquor, which is water. And that gives me 1,250 pounds of water, hot water. Well, that's not very useful unless you have a scale under your hot liquor tank. So we need to divide that by the weight of a gallon of water, which over the years um, I memorized it. But for those that don't know, the weight of one gallon of water is 8.34 pounds. So that gives us 149.88 pounds rounded up to 150 or not pounds, gallons rounded up to 150 gallons of water. So if I was brewing at that scale using 500 pounds of grain, I would need to bring in 150 pounds or I keep saying pounds, 150 gallons of water into the vessel that I'm mixing my 500 pounds of grain in. So um, that's one variable. Second variable temperature, I kind of touched on the temperature differential uh, between the what you set your hot liquor to or what you heat that uh, strike volume up to and what you want the mash temperature to be, which is the next variable I'm going to talk about. But um, basically, like I mentioned, you have an, an idea of what the temperature change, the drop in temperature from that uh, strike temperature, let's say it's 170 degrees, and you have a temperature differential of 15 degrees. So when you mix that with the grist at a 2.5 to 1 uh, liquor to grist ratio, that temperature drops 15 degrees. So we're going to hit a mash temperature of 155 degrees. And these are just random numbers that I'm picking. They're not actual numbers that I'm, I'm looking to hit for a specific beer. So then the final one, um, what the actual mash temperature is. So you need to decide what you want that temperature to be. So if you have a, a temperature differential of 15 degrees Fahrenheit and you want to hit a mash temperature of 150 degrees, your strike temperature needs to be 165 degrees. Um, so with the mash temperature, I've mentioned this kind of briefly on the original mash podcast, but you want the uh, the conversion that happens. We'll just say loosely conversion right now until we get into it uh, in a second. But the conversion that happens, um, it it changes the the efficacy of that conversion when you change the temperature. So the higher end of the spectrum, let's say 156, 157, uh, 158, and this is all Fahrenheit because I'm American. Um, on that end of the spectrum, you're going to have um, conversion take place that is going to yield a less fermentable wort. On the lower end of that spectrum, we're thinking like 150 or I'm sorry, 145, 144, that is going to yield you a much higher fermentability in the wort that you produce. So the yeast will be able to eat much more sugar that is produced by that wort than the uh, wort produced at 158 degrees Fahrenheit. So, uh, and that, that change is pretty significant. So it can drastically alter the final product just based on not hitting that one number. So if you're brewing, let's say, I'm still drinking this Miller Lite, hence uh, why I'm going to use it as the example. If you were to brew this Miller Lite and you were to mash it in consistently at 145 degrees Fahrenheit to produce an ultra 
fermentable, very, very fermentable wort. And then for whatever reason, you or the person that's brewing this recipe mashes in 158 degrees Fahrenheit, that is going to yield a much less fermented wort. So it's going to have a lot more residual sugar. It's going to have uh, more body to it uh, because all of the proteins weren't broken down as, as effectively as they would have been. And it's going to yield ultimately a lower alcohol content because you have fermented less sugar as a whole of the entire uh, wort base and you yielded a lower volume of alcohol net. So all those to say that you need to decide what you want your your, uh, mash temperature to be and then do your best to hit that temperature. So for this specific example, let's say that we're looking to hit on a um, 12 degree pale lager, topical to Tanglefoot. Uh, Let's say I'm looking to hit 153 to 154 degrees uh, Fahrenheit. So knowing all of those variables, your strike temperature, your strike volume, your grist, um, liquor to grist ratio, and your mash temperature, then you proceed to mashing in, mixing all the grain, making sure that there's no dough balls, and then taking temperature readings of that mash. So what is actually happening in this mash, this conversion that I keep alluding to? So when you mix water, hot water specifically, with grain, milled grain specifically, which we mill so that we just have access to the starches that are inside um, of that husk, and we're not looking to completely pulverize it, we just want to crack it open and leave the, the husk material kind of intact, Otherwise, we would just have this powdery, floury mess that would get real gummy and and dense, and it wouldn't allow for, for a good runoff. So the husk material actually creates a kind of like a filter medium where it separates all the particulate and allows water to flow through that mash bed pretty effectively um, instead of just clogging up and all of it sinking to the bottom. So um, what's actually happening is a couple of things. We are physically um, um, solubilizing the starches in the grain. So we're actually put, we're extracting these, um, molecules into the water and it's creating this sugar starchy solution. Right. And then, um, second, well, actually sort of like primarily the, uh, in grain, there are these things, the naturally occurring things called enzymes and enzymes are in every aspect of biology, um, but they are proteins that are in a specific shape. So proteins are just a specific type of molecule that are in a specific shape that do something. They are like a key to a lock. They, they do some sort of action And in this case, they are breaking down these large carbohydrate molecules or starch molecules, which are just like all these giant chains of sugars, basically. These big, 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 complex giant chains of sugars. And these enzymes, these naturally occurring enzymes, kind of fit onto those sugars. And they just imagine like Pac-Man chomping down on little, little dots in the game they're biting down and chomping off little pieces of that giant starch carbohydrate molecule. So they, um, depending on the specific enzyme, they're biting off different parts of the molecule. 
And so at a lower temperature, um, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, at a lower temperature, a certain enzyme, and I believe it's beta amylase. Um, I, I've, oh man, I'm gonna, I'm gonna get so much shit for this if I get it wrong. But uh, <laughs> I'm pretty sure beta amylase is more active at at uh, cooler temperatures. But um, you're getting um, little chunks of sugars being bitten off. So like very fermentable, uh, like glucose, sucrose molecules, very, very fermentable, um, small uh, sugars that are getting bitten off of this giant molecule. But they'll get to a point where they can no longer bite off due to the nature, to the shape, kind of like a tree branch. It has a lot of branches, branch points, and it'll do this on a straight line of a branch so it'll just keep going down one one strand of sugar and biting off those those little uh pieces of sugar um until it gets to a branched location and so it will then stop because it cannot the physical nature of that enzyme cannot grip around or, or tear that that molecule apart any longer and this is the the beta amylase uh and that is effective at lower temperatures then at the other end of the spectrum, you have um, uh, you have alpha amylase, which is much more um, effective at breaking down those large chains into uh, smaller large chains. If that makes any sense, I know this is very kind of like abstract and weird to to just listen to, but there's a lot of good material out there that describes it better in textbooks and stuff but basically it breaks down these you know when you eat all those little pieces off and you're just left with these like little nubs on this big branched molecule it can break that molecule apart and then the beta amylase can go to work and start doing its work again but uh the two play in tandem and um a, uh, so the alpha amylase works more effectively at warmer temperatures, beta amylase at lower temperatures. And so uh, we want to shoot for this, what's called the brewer's window. Um, so there's this, you know, on a graph, there's kind of like a temperature over um, effectiveness of these enzymes. And there's a little window where the uh, both alpha and beta amylase are, are kind of like peaking and, and doing their work effectively. Um, cause without one or the other, it would not, you would not have a, a very good, uh, fermentable work. Um, so in this brewer's window is kind of like the 148 to 154, whatever the specific temperature range is, but we want to hit in there generally. So that's what's happening. You're physically, you're breaking down molecules with these enzymes that are naturally occurring. And then they are being, um, or yeah, yeah, they're just breaking down and, and, uh, and, and yielding molecules that are then fermentable by yeast later on in the fermentation process. So I was very, I know that's kind of like, uh, heady stuff, but it uh, it's pretty cool to think about. When I, I remember I had this like aha moment when I was brewing and it took me, it was probably like a year and a half into into brewing professionally. And I was talking to to Jeff, my uh, friend and the original head brewer at Blackstar. And, and I was like, 
oh, I read this chapter and um, saw these graphs of of what these enzymes are doing, and I get it. Like I actually understand what is happening. These these proteins, these enzymes are coming in, and they're fit, and they're breaking off these these pieces of sugar so that the yeast can then metabolize them later on in the process. And he was like, yeah, it's you know, once once that kind of like clicks, you're you're it just really changes your perspective on, on what's the purpose of doing these things. Cause we can, you know, toss this jargon around and be like, Oh, alpha beta amylase and brewer's window. And you got to mash in with 2.5 to one liquor to grist. And it's all just jargon until you're like, Oh shit, that makes a lot of sense. Like there is a, 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 a chemical reaction or a, a um, reason for all of these things that, uh, the reason I want to hit these metrics. So I just thought that was pretty interesting. I wanted to dive into that a little bit. Um, and then of course, once those, those large sugar carbohydrates are broken down, which usually happens in the first like 20 minutes of the mash, but standard practice is usually like one hour of steeping, uh, to allow those enzymes to break those, uh, starches and carbohydrates down. Uh, then you're able to run off, uh, that wort that is fermentable at this point into the kettle and then proceed to boil. Uh, there are some caveats with different mash schedules. Um, there are, uh, I mean, this is topical to Tanglefoot. There are different, uh, decoction steps. So you can mash in at a much lower temperature. You can do a specific like protein rests. So th think about that same concept where the sugar molecules or, or the starch molecules are being broken down that same thing can happen to protein so that you have a much um several reasons but you can get a clearer wort you can run off more effectively uh especially in like under modified malts uh you can decoct which is where you pull a portion of that mash you boil it to 212 degrees and then you reintroduce it in order to step that temperature up which is where this whole decoction process started you're able to control each step in the process all the way up from a you know let's say a protein rest a beta amylase rest and alpha amylase rest and then you are uh you know running off um so yeah that's where decoction originally came from you're heating up a portion of the mash in order to heat up the entirety of the mash and you're achieving different results by doing that but yeah just uh just thought I'd share a little bit of insight into what's going on into the mash mashy boys. And, uh, I hope that made sense. Somebody double check. I was trying to, to Google this as I was talking, but I was ineffective. Um, but yeah, I'm pretty sure that I had that alpha and beta amylase. Correct. If not, uh, I will make a edit to this episode and add a little caveat at the end. Um, if I was incorrect, but thanks for listening. If you did, and I hope you come back for another one if you're not bored to tears. Thank you. Nazdravi. Have a good night. Bye-bye.